welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm David Ho. I'm a partner here in Hong Kong at Hydrox and Struggles. I lead the CEO and board practice here. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Martin Xiang. Hi, everyone. I'm Martin Xiang. I'm a principal in the industrial practice at Hydrox and Struggles Hong Kong office. In today's podcast, we are speaking with Agnes Tai, director of Great Glory Investment Corporation. Agnes models and manages a climate and ESG-centric Greater China Equities portfolio. Across her 41 years of serving the financial community in Hong Kong, mainland China, the US, and Australia, she has established and managed investment companies, consultancy practices, and new business units within major financial institutions. Agnes, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, let me start with the first question. According to JP Morgan, sustainable investment has doubled in 2020, and it is further expected to rise significantly again. But as we have a global audience, could you please start by describing the landscape of sustainable investment in Asia's financial centers and how it may compare to other regions? David and Martin, thank you so much for having me and good day to your audience. Now, for one or two in your audience who might not have been very familiar with sustainable investing, it includes investment strategies ranging from ESG integration and stewardship to uh, impact investing in listed and private equities. And often ESG, uh, referring to environment, social governance, is being uh, equated with uh, sustainability. However, without a sound governance, businesses won't be sustainable. So, uh, David, you're so right about the growth. And it's not only happening in the Western capital markets. In Asia, inflow into ESG funds has been strongest in Japan, China, Taiwan, South Korea, and Hong Kong, with Japan in 2020 having the lion's share in ESG-themed asset under management, or we call AUM in short. So this year, I spoke with 30 global asset owners and managers with AUM close to 20 trillion US dollars. And a common theme is that capital allocation into sustainable investing will rise rapidly and every investing company is being evaluated by their ESG performance to various extent. They want to see boards and senior management being committed to ESG and sustainable growth. Now, while Europe has practiced sustainable investing for several decades, where currently around 50% of AUM employs ESG. China uh, and Asia particularly uh, is, is uh, catching up quickly in the past three to five years. For instance, in Hong Kong, the number of green or ESG funds as authorized by our Securities and Futures Commission, or SFC in short, have grown rapidly to nearly 60, 
with one-fifth of them being added just in the first seven months of this year. And they are suitable for retirement schemes um, for retail investors as well. So I can take you through some major markets in Asia if you like. Agnes, yes, it would be very interesting to hear your views on some of the key markets in Asia, China, Japan, you've mentioned, and of course, Hong Kong. I'd love to. So we can look at some of the key drivers of this growth in Asia, namely investors, regulators, and public awareness. And these all affect how companies and their securities are being assessed and valued. Asset managers and owners in Asia are increasingly targeting positive and measurable ESG outcomes in their portfolios where investing companies are being evaluated with an ESG lens. So in Asia, the leader is Japan, Japan's government pension investment fund, or we call it GPIF in short. It has an AUM of 1.5 trillion US dollars, which is a touch larger than the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, they began the ESG mandate search in 2016 with an initial allocation in 2017 and within three years. ESG themed mandates have reached more than 15% of their AUM. Now in Singapore, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has set up a 2 billion US dollars investments program in late 2019 to promote public markets investment strategies for long-term sustainable returns. Coming back to our territory, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government has set up a green bond program, which was launched in 2018. And the HKMA, our uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, is actually a, a UNPRI signatory. And uh, they partner with a number of other agencies and led by SFC in May 2020 in the cross-agency steering group that was set up to accelerate the growth of green and sustainable finance in Hong Kong. Now, we all have heard about China's public commitment to peak carbon by 2030 and uh, carbon neutrality by 2060. So in China, the NSSF, which is our National Social Security Fund, has in the third quarter of 2020 invited the bids from international asset managers. Now, they haven't done it for five years. So there was a gap of five years since 2015. And one of the three requests for proposals uh, was surrounding uh, responsible investing. And through my network, I heard that they've dedicated an ESG investment research team in the second half of last year. And I won't be surprised that HKMA, soon the NSSF will require asset managers to offer an ESG component in their strategies. South Korea also has been uh, doing that in January this year. The Financial Services Commission in South Korea has announced a series of measures to encourage ESG and responsible investing. So all Asian stock markets are members of the Sustainable Exchange Initiative and all have measures to encourage sustainable investing. I want to leave you with uh, one piece of very interesting information that you might already know, David and Martin. So Hong Kong's stock market capitalization is around 13 to 14 times of our GDP. 
which is as compared with just over two times in the U.S. So that shows us that global institutional investors are very active in our markets. And so companies really need to take note that all these demands mean that ESG is no longer a nice to have, but an essential consideration for securing capital to ensure sustainable growth. Agnes, it's very um, interesting, the information you've just given us. And a lot of it is clearly driven by regulatory pressures and public pressures, etc. One of the questions that we get asked a lot in our work by clients um, and companies is, what is the role of boards of listed companies in driving sustainable investment and other types of ESG activities, given the amount of regulatory and investor pressure? That's a really good question, David. Boards have the fiduciary duties of exercising skills, care and diligence in steering the companies on the path of sustainable growth and long-term performance. Now, boards cannot rest on past laurels and they need to be forward-looking. And we're not talking about two to three quarters, but we're talking about 15 to 20 years or longer into the future. Sustainable investing is not only from the viewpoint of securing capital and finance to fund operations of a company, but also in allocating resources strategically into investments that ensure the company maintains sustainable competitive advantage over their peers in the industry. I can give you an example. Now, this company in Denmark, in Danish, it sounds like Erster. And in English, we read it as Orsted. They earned 85% of the revenue from coal-fired power plants 13 years ago when it was just named uh, back then Dawn Energy. Now, in 2009, the board took a major strategic shift where 85% of heat and power will come from renewable energy by 2040. After a very long, you know, 13 years, certainly not easy. It is now the world's leading offshore wind power producer with a 30% market share. And they are ahead of schedule. 90% of their total energy generation already came from renewable sources last year. So when we look at fossil fuel companies and uh, investors uh, invested in them are now facing the issue of stranded assets, as we estimate that 80% of their assets will not become few as the world shifts to clean energy to help slow global warming. I can give you another very quick example before we uh, move on, and that is the example of investing in opportunities due to ESG. Cathay Pacific has, with its foresight a few years back, started investing in sustainable aviation fuel, SAF for short, And this can substantially reduce greenhouse gas emissions from their planes. But when airlines globally demand SAF, that price, which is now several times higher than your normal jet fuel, can come down. And when the demand is good enough, that potentially can be an additional revenue stream for Cathay Pacific. Thank you, Agnes. It's clear, therefore, that the role of boards in driving sustainable investment and ESG is set and and people understand it. 
In your experience in Asia, how do you feel companies or boards are taking a leading role in embedding ESG into their company strategies? Is it happening? And what could they do more? If we look at ESG ratings, very few of Asian companies actually attain above average ESG scores. But there are a few that are rated AAA by MSCI, who is one of the major international ESG rating agencies. So if we look at in Asia, Swipe Properties in Hong Kong, CDL in Singapore, they have incorporated sustainability for some years now. And today, they are the very few Asian companies who are included in the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes, both in the world and Asia Pacific. And this is a very, very high bar for them to be included. Even when COVID-19 briefly affected financial performance, investors are very happy to stay invested in them. And this takes commitment from the board with devotion of resources over a long period of time. We're not talking about three quarters. We're talking about three years or maybe 30 years, right? So a number of good companies like CLP, MTR in Hong Kong are also being highly regarded. So um, coming back to ESG scores, Now, I've looked at those rankings from a dozen service providers, both globally and in the mainland, and I read a lot of sustainability reports. I sort of feel that most of the reports by chairpersons or CEOs are less forward-looking than what investors would like, and the commitments to embed ESG factors into strategies can come through much stronger. For instance, Goals and metrics are not often clearly stated, and very few would proactively report scope three greenhouse gas emission data. Very few companies have committed to net zero or have a climate plan or adopt science-based targets, which is deemed as a gold standard, right, in addressing climate risks. Now, having said that, many Asian companies are now aligning their businesses with relevant UN Sustainable Development Goals. And during the pandemic, people can see how some of the Asian companies are leaders in genuinely taking care of their employees, their customers, and the communities that they operate in. So one last point is that What's interesting is that corporate nights in 2021 in the global 100 sustainable companies, they have 16 Asian names in it. And these are like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, Phytosoy from Hong Kong, Lenovo, uh, BYD, CDL, Capital Land, a couple from Japan, two from Australia. And I note that as compared to the 143 Chinese companies that has made the Fortune 500 list, we note that whilst higher ESG score apparently and seems to correlate with size of the company, sustainability is more tied to leadership. And most of our Asian companies are really ramping up at the board level to embed ESG into their strategies, their processes and their procedures. Agnes, you mentioned leadership. Do you think the leadership comes from the board or from the executive team? That's a really good question. So it is no uh, secret 
That's why properties, uh, which is ranked AAA by MSCI and also on the Dow Jones uh, Sustainability uh, Index, their sustainability team has mentioned that it took them two years to be able to show all the benefits to the boards, so that the boards at first asked a lot of questions because they weren't quite sure. And after two years, the boards went fully committed. They set up committees, they set up the teams, and the teams is not small. Uh, the teams have around 10 people, just like CLP's sustainability team has got around 10 people in it. So boards in the past have been taking a little time, but currently because of all the pressures from the regulators and investors, boards are now really gearing up. And partly because they have seen the benefits of adopting ESG best practices. Let me give you some examples of the benefits. And these come from speaking with six or seven Asian green bond issuers last year. So one of the benefits is that the investor space broadens to now include ESG and sustainable investment communities, which tend to stay a lot longer. So the investor space is more stable and the speed of raising capital is much quicker than when you use traditional instruments. And there's potential savings because uh, for sustainable loans and bonds, um, the coupons and the loan rates could be lower when the KPIs are being met. And then through my interviewing 30 asset managers and uh, asset owners, they definitely point to the fact that reputation, brand loyalty, trust, ability to attract better talents, uh, suppliers, community support, even media coverage. And so ultimately, uh, having the right strategies isn't all about all the risks, but also about capturing opportunities. And um, the boards are just now beginning to speed up on that one, although some boards are still a little bit behind. Agnes, I know my colleague Martin has some questions in particular around the roles and opportunities boards have in the space. So I'll hand over to Martin here. From your extensive experience, so what advice would you give boards that might not be as advanced as others in factoring the ESGs into their strategy and decision making? How can they make sure that they have the relevant sustainability expertise at the table? Thank you, Martin, for that question. So after I address this, let me come back a little bit to what boards that are already way on the ESG journey can also do to enhance their ESG practices. So as to boards that might not be as advanced as some of the other ones, from my uh, facilitating training in governance and sustainability for the Hong Kong Institute of Directors in the past seven years, Sometimes I get asked this question, um, should we hire a consultant to help with ESG? So I say, well, those who can guide your firm in materiality, data analysis, and write very good stories are certainly very helpful. But for climate risks, especially transition risk scenario modeling, to answer TCFD recommended reporting, the consultants are also on a steep learning curve. So what can boards do? The best way is to add a board member who knows corporate governance as well as having reasonable ESG knowledge, or at least be able to ask the right questions. Well, and better yet, one who knows the 
investment community or being respected by them. So this person can help formulate strategy, act as a bridge between the board and the management, and also uh, can speak the language of the investors. Now we see that shareholders' activism, which is now predominant in the West, is beginning to happen in Asia. And we saw what happened at Toshiba in June. So boards that are just starting on the ESG journey can take a couple of very simple initial steps. Uh, one being do a thorough internal assessment before you engage consultants. You now come up with all the right questions to ask and see if you could internally answer those questions. The boards can increase the amount of time devoted to discussions around ESG. Boards can uh, consider policies, strategies, and processes around ESG that can be enhanced. They can bring on board somebody who knows ESG or have that sort of experience. They can uh, read sustainability reports and buy-side analyst reports of their industry peers to gain some insights. And they can also get a better grasp of ESG materiality and perhaps ask for a risk register to be presented at every board meeting. So from there, boards can actually either rectify gaps and make proactive ESG decisions. And the boards can employ executive search firms, renowned ones like yourselves, to identify independent directors with ESG knowledge. Now, let me very quickly address three points that boards that are well way on the ESG journey can also consider their own culture and dynamics, whether ESG issues are openly and thoroughly discussed before making informed decisions. They could make sure that there is diversity of perspectives, which is what the stock exchange is driving at to avoid groupthink and perhaps establish a sustainability committee at the board level. Thank you, Agnes, for sharing all these helpful insights. And what's your final thought you wish to leave with our audience? Well, sustainable investing is becoming mainstream, if not already. Corporate boards really have to make ESG a crucial part in fulfilling their fiduciary duties, and they have to start now. Agnes, thank you so much for all your insights and information. I'm sure our listeners will find it very, very useful. And we look forward to um, speaking with you again soon. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, David and Martin. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.